it's all yours. Okay, is that on? Yep. I think so. Okay, there's... Uh, good morning, good morning. It's good to be with you. Get this off. Good morning, Good Good to be with you. Uh, um, actually, it's a joy. Because you are the saints of God. And our relationship is just beginning. And that's really the burden of my talk this morning. But between here and when we get to our destination, we have a lot to work to do, and we are saints. And I'm going to talk about that. But I've got some orders here. First one is, please remind everyone to sign in. So, guess what I'm going to do? Please sign in. And the sign-up sheet is on your table. Now, let me begin with these words. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So, dear saints of the Church of our Savior, saints, be comfortable with that title. Dear saints of the Church of our Savior, we are going to consider the word holy as it is mentioned and used in the Old and New Testament. We're going to look at the word holy not as it is understood in our everyday vernacular, but as how it is understood in the Old and New Testaments. So I gave you a sheet. Do you all have this sheet which is worth framing and all that? And I'll tell you why, because I'm going to teach you some Greek and Hebrew to start off. And if you notice on the sheet, on the far right, you see the word in Hebrew characters is pronounced kadosh. And I put the transliteration in the center. And then on your far left is the general translation, which is holy. And in the Old Testament, it occurs 431 times. That's a lot. But it shows us where the center of the Jewish faith was. It's in the holiness of God. And when you and I come to church, that's what should vibrate through our hearts and our minds that we are entering into the presence of the Holy One, the Holy God. And the Greek word for holy is hagios. It's used 180 times in the New Testament. So I'd like you to repeat the word kadosh. Kadosh. Oh, yeah, you're, got, you're getting along. This is Hebrew. This is great. Let's do it again. Kadosh. And the New Testament word is hagios. Hagios. Hagios, Hagios. And I think as we go through this, every once in a while I should say, Old Testament? Kadosh. New Testament? Great, great. We're almost done. Now, holy means much the same in the New and the Old Testament. The question is, what does holy mean? Not in our everyday vernacular, but what does it mean in the Holy Scriptures? Holy in the Bible does, has nothing to do with pious or moral. Can you repeat that? 
holy in the Bible has nothing to do with what is pious or moral. And that's sort of an earth-breaking, earth-shattering thing for some people. When we associate kadosh, say it, kadosh or hagios, we often associate it with reverent and holy people who are known for abundance of good works. And we call them saints in our vernacular. That's not biblical, of course. But in our vernacular, we do. If we use the word holy in connection with a pious person, when interpreting kadosh or hagios in the English, I mean in the Greek Bible or the Hebrew Bible, we are misreading the Bible. This is not the meaning of the biblical words kadosh or hagios. It literally means to be set apart. God is set apart from everything. You and I are set apart from this world to serve God. For example, the furnishings in the temple were called what? Kadosh, holy. Since they were not to be used for anything except for worship in the temple. They were set apart for special service. You and I as saints are set apart for special services. We are not walking in the steps of the world, but in the steps of the living Jesus Christ. And he's alive. Think of a home communion kid. I had a, a friend priest of mine, and he was very, 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 uh, what would you, he, he really, what he said, when his visitors went with the, their kids to see the sick, their communion kids, he told them, I want you to put it on the front seat and make sure it doesn't fall over. And then when you're done, I want you to return immediately to the church and put it in the sanctuary. And then you can go home. Because these communion kids are kadosh. And they just don't drive around town. They do their purpose and they go back to church. Israel was what? Kadosh. Why? Because they were separated from the nations as servants of God and as light to the world. You are kadosh as a servant of God and a light to your family, your community, and to the world and to Jacksonville. And it's a different, it's a light that we need because we are surrounded by darkness. You hear it all the time on our, our, our news station and so on. Darkness seems to prevail. Well, let's talk about God for a minute. For the Jews in the Old Testament, the most glorious name for God is Kadosh. You guys are good. A prime example comes in the chapter 6 of Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we experience that when we look at one another or we take a walk in the woods or we do something that is really important and exciting to us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Kadosh, 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 Yahweh Zidioth, Malo Kol Haaretz, Kavodu. And Israel's reaction, or Isaiah's reaction in the temple was, 
and I can echo this, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We know about that. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, Shiva Oath. Now Israel's reaction in the temple was this, as I said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King of glory. Can you imagine somebody like you and me have encountered the Lord of glory in our own hearts, and he visits the world through us? St. Peter was astounded at the great catch of fish that Jesus provided. And Peter fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Isaiah, Peter, clearly recognized the great distance between themselves and God. In shocking contrast, I remember seeing on the back of a Christian youth these words, God is my errand boy. No, no, no. No, no, no. So God is holy. What do we mean when we say that God is holy? And I'm going to jump dump out, dump out a lot of different sentences here. When we call God Kadosh, that means that God is infinitely different, totally other than anything we can possibly think. The ancients used what they call the via negativa in talking about God. They said the best way to talk about God is the only way we can talk about God, to talk about what he isn't. He isn't mean. God transcends any concept any thought that we might have of him. You know, it's like the little ant crawling around. Whoa, there's the elephant. For us, the distance is infinite between us and God. God is the only one without beginning and end. God is the only God who is self-generating. God did not come into existence. God was not made. He simply was, is, and will be. He exists in and of himself, independent of anything else. The triune God is Kadosh. Kadosh. Moses said to God, what is your name? And God said to him, I am who I am. Which is Yahweh. My name is Yahweh. I am who I am. God is unique absolutely other, holy. There is no one like him. God alone is eternal. In church dogmatics, we speak of the aseity of God, which means that God exists in and of himself. That's not me. I don't even know where I came from. And I guess in a certain sense, if it wouldn't be for Christ, I would have no idea when this would all terminate. 
All creation, all things, living, inanimate, human, material, have a beginning and an end, are mortal, passing, transient, terminal. I guess like us. And God distinguishes himself from all that is dead, inert, hollow, and impermanent. The great systematization, Catherine Sunderrigger said. And Paul, Tur Paul Tillich affirmed, God is the ground of being. That's very philosophical. What does he mean when we say God is the ground of being? Okay, God is the only answer to the threat of my non-being. God is the only answer to the threat of my non-being. And that's why we rush to the cross and to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That why we are baptized into his living life and we are alive. Get this forever. Jesus said, you know, those who live and believe me shall not die. And the disciple like this. I say, ah, okay, let me say it again. Those who live and believe me will never die. And one of my favorite theologians says this. He says that um, when he preaches at funerals, he never speaks in some vague way that, well, they will be with heaven. He says, no, in Christ they are raised immediately the moment that they leave and they are in heaven. I believe that. That's why I'm a preacher. That's why I proclaim the gospel. I believe that instantaneously, well, not even instantaneously, already, John says, you are eternal life already because God in Christ is the ground and hope of your being. Well, let's talk about the saints for a moment. We're talking about you. Okay? When we speak of Christ Christians as hagios, say that, hagios, holy, in the New Testament, we simply mean that you and I have been set apart, not because of any merit in me or you, but because of God's inscrutable will and election. My destiny, my hope, is not in my hands. It is all in the hands of the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And he will raise you and me. But then Jesus reminds us, you're never going to die. Your death is an opening to the life you already have. We are hagioi, set apart from this fallen world. Think of yourself that. Set apart from this fallen world. And we have entered into a new world called the kingdom of God that is present among us. We are spiritual people, led by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. We may, think of our, we may not think of ourselves as saints as the word is used, but a saint you are. God says so. He underscored it with the blood of Christ. You are God's saint. You belong to God. Now, Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa devoted her life to serving the poor and destitute of the world. She was a great, great Christian. 
Mother Teresa was honored by the Roman Catholic Church as a saint. Saint Teresa of Calcutta on September 4th, 2016. And that is years and years after she died. And we seem to think as Christians even that the saints are only people who have died. Paul, however, addresses the Corinthians. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. The Corinthians as saints, as saints alive. Paul writes to the church of God. Now, I'm quoting Paul here. His, one of his, 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 his greetings in his letter, opening letter in Paul, for Corinthians. To the church of God, which is, that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, called to be hagios, called to be saints. And the word church is, it comes from ecclesia. Ecclesia, ecclesia means to call, 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 come, come, Jesus says to the disciples, come, come, follow me. And ek means out of this world. You are called out of this world in such a way that you are now a servant of God in a fallen world. Wow, what a calling. It's like Christ going to the cross, isn't it? But we know that that means life, and we are life-giving people. That's who we want to be. So, the ecclesia in the New Testament is a group of people, da-da-da-da, who've been called out of the world to God. The ecclesia is the church. You are called out of the world to be a particular people for God and to serve Him. Now, the Corinthians, as we commonly use the term, are hardly saints. Yet that is exactly what Paul calls them. The young church was filled with ugly divisions and hateful behavior, shameful behavior. For example, in 1 Corinthians, some say, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Peter, I belong to Christ. And Paul erupted. He said, is Christ divided among you? What do we say? I'm an Episcopalian, I'm a Baptist. And it might even go on into our political circles. So, some say, that's who I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm something special. In chapter 5, Paul, we hear that a man is living with his father's wife. That was okay in those days, but not when Christ came. Not after that. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul raises the question, when any of you has a grievance against another, do you dare to take it to court before the unrighteous instead of taking it before the saints. It grieved Paul that many Christians settled their disputes by argument, by contention, and even going to courts. Now, I'm not telling you not to go to court, but you get the point, don't you? There's something about Christians. There's something about reconciliation. And the fourth one that I picked up is the Corinthians were very good about social things, gatherings, who's invited the rich, the poor, whatever. And Paul also warned them about abuses around the Lord's Supper. So these are just a few examples of, pastoral's of Paul's pastoral attention rooted and coming out of his two letters to the Corinthians. Now don't get the picture wrong. The Corinthians were set apart. 
They're set apart by Jesus to witness to God's gospel and to serve this warring and contentious world we live in. And God can use imperfect people. Isn't that amazing? We qualify. And note, Paul never called the Corinthians sinners. What did he call them? Saints. You got it. Hagiwe. What a difference. How do you feel about yourself? How do you like me to get up and say, you bunch of sinners? I got to tell you this joke. Uh, this interruption by the joke. <clears throat> this, this preacher came into it on these big, big, big tents, you know, these tent gatherings. And he got up and he got onto some of his favorite topics like sin, sex, immorality, cheating, etc., etc., etc. And then he glowered over the congregation, being high up on the pulpit, you know, glowered over and said, Is there anyone here who is not a sinner? Please stand up. Dead silence. Except in the back, an old lady stood up. And he screeched at her and said, why are you standing up? And she said, well, I didn't want you to be the only one standing. <laughs> oh. So anyway. <laughs> As a keeper. As a keeper, yeah, thank you. So Paul loved the Corinthians. He praised them for their new calling in Christ. What is special about you in the history of your life? You've been called by Christ to be Christ-like, to serve God. And that is the gift of life. One person asked me, well, whoa, 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 what's life all about? I said, it's simple. The goal of my life is to be with God. I know I'm, I'm well, I'm in my 80s now. But the goal of my life is to be with God. The goal of our life as saints is to be with God. But we already belong to Him. So let's make use of that. Let's be who we are. So Paul loved the, loved the Corinthians. And Paul's letter, Paul founded the church about 20 years after the resurrection. So Christianity was a new thing. It's decades before any of the Gospels were written. So Paul, Paul was dealing with fresh ideas of morality. He was dealing with non-Jewish people and all the moral stuff that he expected from the Corinthians, Paul enunciated. Yet, Paul recognized their shortcomings, but he acknowledged their moral progress. My goodness, somebody said to me, are you going to change at all at your age? What do you think, Benny? I better, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, so... Yes, we got a lot to learn. We got a lot to learn as Christians in a morally unmoored and uncentered world. It's a big world. So Paul issues two imperatives for moral grounding of the saints of our own day. He says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in baptism, you have been forgiven, reborn, given a renewed mind. You just think differently. You really believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's different thinking. 
Try to convince somebody of that who doesn't believe it. We are spiritual people. Not, in, not that we are holier than thou, but we are led by the Spirit to live the life of Jesus Christ. Paul calls those reborn by the Holy Spirit new creation. Someone new in an old, rebellious, passing away creation. And we pray, thy will be done. And we add to that, let it be done through me. Here I am, Isaiah says. Send me. Send me. The Holy Spirit empowers the baptized to love, serve, and obey Jesus. By baptism, you are marked as Christ's own forever and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Marked. The character of Jesus Christ is stamped upon your heart and your mind by the Holy Spirit. You are sanctified, and that's the word hagias. To be sanctified is to be set apart for God. That's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart for God. And you are sealed. This is a sign of who you are, and never forget that. Saints belong to God. We are ecclesia, called out of this world. Now, of course, being apart by, being set apart by God involves proper conduct on our part. For we are his workmanship, Paul says in Ephesians. Created, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. Before I was born, God planned the good works that you and I would do. Peter says, as he who called you is holy, different. Be holy yourselves, different in all your conduct. Stanley Howard was a long-time professor at the university, at Duke University, tells of his, ex of his experience in Greenville, South Carolina, when he was a pastor. The community of clergy gathered, get, gathered together. And the rabbi lamented. He said, you don't know how hard it is for me to raise my kids in this town. I tell him, you are Jewish. To which Stanley responded, you don't know how hard it is for me to raise my kids in this town. I have to tell him, you can't do that because you're baptized. I'm baptized. I'm baptized. Praise God. Now, a member of my congregation told me that he was on a business, business flight from Philadelphia to Los Angeles. As he was departing the plane, the flight attendant gave him a note with her name and the phone number of the hotel where she would be standing, or where she would be staying. Well, <laughs> for a moment, the guy was discombobulated. But he quickly got his bearings. And he said to me, and maybe this is because of my pastor. He said to me, Pastor, I could not walk up for Holy Communion in my church with my brothers and sisters if I fractured the bond between them and myself and God. He says, I'm a member of the ecclesia. The church. He, didn't say, he didn't say ecclesia, I'm saying it. Of the church called out, people called out. I will not fail my wife and my kids. I belong to God. He's the light of my path. Now I'm going to go on sacrifice. Let's see. 
We're okay, we're gonna move faster. I was gonna leave, leave ten minutes for <laughs> ten minutes for chat, but maybe we still get. Okay, then I can go a little bit faster. God says, John 3 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world, its people, even the green grass. How does God express his life? The word that clearly comes to my mind is sacrifice. So love and sacrifice are two sides of the same coin. And we all have received, been recipients of sacrifice. You and I received sacrifice even when we did not know it. Love and sacrifice comes from those who know how to give of themselves for others. Think, think of our mothers raising us as children over the years. Love and sacrifice are the dancing partners of mothers. And God made a clear, clear sacrifice when he came into our violent, stony, rebellious, and fallen world. God is revealed in his sacrifice. God's love is revealed in, our sac in his sacrifice in the sacrifice of his son on the cross. The son was spit upon, the passerbyers derided him. They said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. They seemed to taunt him by saying, since God is powerful, if you were God, you would come down from the cross and not be overpowered by death. Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He died naked, deserted, alone. He was the sacrifice of God. Amazingly, that was Good Friday for God. Can you believe that? It was also Good Friday for you and me. Good Friday is the day that death died. And God poured his love into the world. Good Friday is the, death, is the day that death died. And God pours forth his love into the world. Paul says in Philippians, being found in Philippians 2, being found in the form of God, in human form, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Richard Ward says this, he says, God has forever redefined the power of the Holy Trinity. The Christian God's power comes through powerlessness and humility. Our God is much more properly called all vulnerable than almighty, which is clear from the constant metaphor in the New Testament of Jesus as the Lamb of God. As I was a kid, I was reading Revelation chapter 5, and I came across this passage. It said, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll. The lion is a militaristic, violent figure. I had to turn the page to continue my reading, and I was startled. The slaughtering figure of the lamb was transformed in, I mean, I'm sorry, 
the slaughtering figure of the lion was transformed into the slaughtering, slaughtered figure of the lamb. And the scrolls with the destiny of humankind were placed not in the hands of the ravenous lion, but in the hands of the sacrifice, slaughtered lamb, as Revelation says. Into his hands, safe, sacrificing love of hands. And the lamb is the central figure of the book of Revelation. We got to go into that sometime. But note well, Jesus does not fit the role of a vengeful God as some interpreters of Revelation teach. Leander Keck said, God is not about retribution, but about restoration. Loving and sacrifice. These are the essentials of a Christian community. That's what makes us vibrant and alive. Serving others in Christ's name will always require love and sacrifice. Sometimes very great sacrifice. The obverse is also true. Not serving others in obedience to Christ does not require any sacrifice. The prophets of the Old Testament hated hypocrisy, as does Jesus. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. You do all the right things as a religious person, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these that you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. So Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. That's the long story of God's reconciling love. I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters, to present your bodies, your whole self, to God, which is your spiritual service. Can you imagine serving somebody physically? I don't know how else you would do it, but to call that spiritual service? Sacrifices in the Old Testament were dead and placed on the altar. They served their purpose and were discarded in a proper manner. In the Old Testament, this prophet Samuel said to Saul, Surely to obey is better than sacrifice, 1 Samuel 15. Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, Matthew 9. Jesus and Samuel were not objecting to sacrifice. They were objecting to the lack of proper behavior related to sacrifice. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're bringing your gift to the altar, and there you remember you got something against your brother or sister? Drop the money. I don't need it. Go first and be reconciled to your brother or your sister. Then come and make your offering. Isn't that a joyful thing? So Paul calls for living sacrifices. Love and sacrifice are at the heart of the story of Jesus. His story forms our life's pattern. His teachings inform our worldview. We are living sacrifices. We are not sanctified by the Holy Spirit to sit on the bench. We are not second stringers. We are called to action for Christ. Now you can't be alive for Christ without going deeper into your faith. 
We don't drift into active faith. We work at it. The Holy Spirit yearns to turn our faith from a noun to a verb. You know, everybody says, oh, I believe in God. I believe in God, therefore I'm going to heaven. <laughs> the Holy Spirit wants to change it from a noun like that to a verb. James puts it this way. So faith itself, if it has not works, is dead. Now, metaphorically, we are all, we all have the prince of Christ in our hands, our feet, and our side. We are the hands and feet of Christ, we say, striving in behalf of the gospel in these hard and horrid times. Love and sacrifice reflect the love of God in our lives. Is not that why God has called you to be a saint? To do the work of the kingdom. Now, a group of Christians in my congregation, they did this on their own. I didn't even know about it. A group of Christians in my congregations demonstrated richly the ministry of love and sacrifice. Love. Well, what did they do? The Holy Spirit began a ministry in the inner city, in the inner city church of poor and largely neglected people in Atlanta. Many had come from rescue homes. At the core, they had uh, things like worship, uh, worship and praise. They called it Saturday Night Alive. So that's the love that they had. But sacrifice, can you imagine, they had, it was monthly. Can you imagine feeding over 100 people every, every month, preparing all the food, buying all the food? They brought in a, a, a roaster on wheels, cooked a whole pig, shared it with the people. They gave up many Saturdays, many hours. But they didn't think of it as giving it up. They saw it as a giving of themselves for those who need love and care. And I was invited to come and see, thankfully. And I sat at a table with a vestry person who had come from the suburbs. And he told me which, what one of the people had said. The man said, these people, these people, these people are unlike other churches who bring food in and dish it out from the window out of casserole dishes. But not these people. They serve us, they sit down with us, and they eat with us. And guess what they said? We eat the same food that they eat at home. It was a treat. And I ate with a woman from one of the houses for the needy, and she said, I now have good friends. I am a phone partner with one of the women who comes here. We pray together. We chat. The only gospel available, perhaps, to these broken and neglected people of God was probably what they saw. My friends were like the people in Corinth, not saints in the common vernacular of the word. No, they are saints in the biblical sense of the world. They belonged to God, and they acted like it. Now, many of my friends have died. And what a joy for them to enter into the heavenly feast. And get this. And to be served by Jesus. I recall Jesus' own words. Startling words. 
He said, blessed are those servants whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly I tell you, the master will fasten his belt and have them sit down and he will come and serve them. Our Lord's service does bring joy and wonderment to the eyes of the saints. Our destiny is placed in good hands. Paul says, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Richard, War at Richard Rohr has a tidy way of celebrating the gospel, the good news. And I want to share it with you. He says, God cannot not see you, see his son in you. Let me say it again. God cannot not see you in you, his son. You are the body of Christ. It's the church. You are bone of God's bone. That's why God cannot stop loving you. That's why no amount of effort will make God love you any more than he does right now. And he goes on to say, despite your best efforts to be terrible rascals, you can't make God love you any less than he loved you now. Okay? Okay, there we go. We're going to make it. All right. So, let me just end with these words. I left a church that I visited. And I was struck by a sign, an Episcopal church, by the way. And what it said, now the mission begins. We've all heard of the gospel of St. Mark, right? What about the gospel of you? In a sense, the story begins when you walk out of this church, having consumed Christ and having Christ in you. And the moral of the story is this, be who you are. You belong to God. Act like it. Amen. Okay, these words. Rejoice in the Holy One. Again, I will say rejoice. And then these words. The Holy One is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Made it. Yeah. Cheers,